what it is, RJLA family. I am Angela Birdsong, your conversation piece host on Radio Justice LA Morning Wake Up Call at radiojustice.org. For something new or unusual to talk about, for stimulating conversation for you on the bus, train, plane, or simply at the water cooler or in Cubicle Nation. Today on Conversation Piece, from his native El Salvador to a new country, from being fit and overall content to physically and emotionally broken in a matter of night, meet Douglas Sandoval, who will share his story of survival, perseverance, and faith to give hope to do the impossible. Mr. Sandoval's inspiring story is told in his book, Comeback, One Man's Triumph Over a Near-Death Experience. Welcome to Conversation Peace. Come back, Douglas. Come back. I've been wanting to say that all week. Douglas, welcome to Conversation Peace. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me here. So the before we get to the near um, tragic accident, I want to talk about life in El Salvador um, that you beautifully describe in your book, just the just where you guys were living your mom's spirit of entrepreneurship by having a store there. Life, life was a little difficult, but life was free and you were liberated. And, you, you know, your family was there, didn't have too much of a relationship with, with, your, with your father, but you had your mother, you had your sister, and you had your, your grandmother. Um, tell me about life in El Salvador. Hmm. Life in Saba was beautiful at that age. You know, uh, like I said in my book, um, uh, one part of my book, I said that I was, we were poor, but we were happy poor people. And from what I remember when I was being a kid in this little place, there were like about six to eight houses. I don't think there were many houses in that place. And then um, I had the best friends, the best friends over there. Uh, then we moved to the side of the road uh, same thing, I met some other friends, we had a whole bunch of kids, you know, uh, uh, happy, very happy. Yeah, I don't remember ever being sad, even knowing that I, at that age, you know, I didn't have a father with me. Uh, and for the few years, I used to call my grandpa dad, and then uh, then he passed away. Things were a little bit different because it was more harder for my mom and my grandma, uh, you know, to keep an eye on me and my little sister. And of course, my mom, like you said, she she was the best. You know, she had this little tiny store, and, and I used to help her with the store. And, and uh, oh my, oh my God, it was it was just beautiful. And uh, and of course, uh, right after that, things change, things change in El Salvador. And and then my mom had to make a very hard decision uh, to leave me and my sister with my grandma. And the hardest part was about leaving us is just because my grandpa was not there no more. 
So it have to be just my grandma taking care of us, and she has other grandchildren she have to look after. So my mom have to make the decision to come to this country and, and leave me and my sister uh, to us, to me, especially to me because I was the older one. It, it wasn't easy. It was not easy. What changed in El Salvador? Uh, that uh, of course, uh, like I said, first we were poor, but that wasn't that issue. The main issue when my mom left, it was because it was a war about to start. And due to the war, now things cannot be as uh, much easier as it was before when she used to go to the main city. And of course, um, the economy was starting to, well, at that moment, I didn't even know what economy was. Let me make that clear. I came to find out what economy was when I came to this country, but now I know why the other reason why my mom left. You know, at first I thought it was because of a war, but then I know that she also left because the economy was, was, was getting bad. And so uh, we could have come with her because she had to come first. And, but the main reason why my mom left is because there was a war about to start and she wanted to make sure by the time the war started, we wouldn't be there uh, at that time. And of course, once again, I wanna clarify that when I came here, and the other reason was because the economy was just starting to go bad and we just needed to get out of there. And when your, your grandfather was alive, the household economy was was good. Yes, it was. You know, he was a uh, man who worked on the fields, you know, and, and so uh, I used to go with him to the field. And uh, of course, like I said, I think the only time that I, I went to bed hungry wasn't because uh, we didn't have uh, nothing to eat. It was because I was out there playing till late. You know, I came home and I would go to bed without eating because nobody would be waiting for you to serve you uh, 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 food. But uh, yeah, uh, the house was good. I remember my uncles, you, you know, they used to work in the fields too. So I, my childhood was a beautiful childhood until until things changed because of the war. Uh, but I had a beautiful childhood. For I remember I had a beautiful childhood. I mean, uh, I I thought El Salvador was the only country in the world. When, you know, I didn't know there were other countries. I I think I went to the city just a couple of times. It was just beautiful to see the city was different. But I was in love with my little town. Right with the with the countryside. The war. You how were you twelve years old at the time? How old were you when when the when the when you got wind of the war was coming and they were going to come and take some of you and your friends to participate in it? I have memories that uh, at one point you can see the soldiers starting to arrive uh, at a little town because there was a bridge there and they were uh, looking after the bridge. So. I remember being proud about 11, close to 12, when I once went to the bridge and this soldier just joked about it. We said, why is it really a joke? And he said that I was gonna be, pretty soon I was gonna be ready to go to, to, go to fight. And, and it was either with them or uh, who were the enemies, because we were under the impression that the, sol that the army, you know, the government was the friends and the other were the enemies. So, but like I said, I, I didn't know too much about it when I was there until I came to this country. And uh, yes, I was around 12 and I said in one part of my book that I, what got my attention one time is when I saw uh, some the pictures on the news and, uh, and 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 I see these guys they were like my age and what scared me was that their rifle were bigger than them so that really scared me and right about that time there was an incident not too far away from my house and and right about that thing was about 12 and that's when my grandma decided it was it, it was just too getting too dangerous for us so she called my mom and said she had to do something about it and, and, and bring me here. So, and that's when it happened. But yes, it was around 12. 
Around 12. And so your mother, your mother um, migrated to the United States first. Did, did she make it here on the first try or did it, how many tries did it take before she actually made it to United uh, she, States soil? She made it twice. Uh, she, she had to make it. Uh, she made it the second time. She came the first time and she was, she was sent back. And then right after that, uh, she uh, tried again. And I remember the first time when, when she left, uh, to us it was devastated because uh, I still remember that. I was a kid, but I still remember. There's a lot of things that I forgot about my past, but it's one thing I, that I can forget is that when I woke up in the morning, my mom was already gone. So I ran to the store. I thought it was she was there, and um, my grandma didn't want to tell us right away what happened. Well, she didn't want to tell me, like I said, because my sister was still a baby. And then uh, I think it was in the night when she finally told me that my mom had come here. So I think I cried. I cried for a week or two, you know. I was hoping to see her. And then, of course, my mom uh, came back because she was sent back. I think it was, I don't even know from where, but someone said it was from Mexico, sent back anyway. So I was excited to see her. And then she told me, and I told her, oh, let's go ahead and open the store. And But uh, she said, no, she had to try again. I remember I cried. I told her not to, not to leave us, uh, just to stay. And I was going to help her run the store. I didn't have to go to school. Just, I'll be with her in the store helping her out. But uh, one morning I woke up again, and then my mom was not there. And then this time I didn't have to run to the store anywhere. I knew that my mom has gone. It's not easy. And that's I don't like talk about too much because it still kind of gets me. It is not easy uh, for any of the kids out there, you know, to be well their parents. That's not how it was supposed to be. But th things happen for a reason, you know. And, and thank God, 40, for like 40 years later, here we are. My mom is still here. We all stay here, and uh, but yeah, those moments were really difficult for me, especially for me because um, I didn't have a father. She was my mom. She she was my father. She was everything to me, and, and uh, so it was hard. It was hard, but it was just a few years, and then we right. finally. Yeah, and then of course, with your grandfather already being deceased, and now your mother is leaving sounds of war are, are approaching. Now, what's the death squad? Uh, in your book, you talk about the death squad. Uh, we didn't have no TV at that time, but when I used to go to my uh, friend's houses and um, cousin's house, they had a TV and we used to hear on the news about the death squad and then people started talking about, about a death squad. But at that moment, I didn't know what a death squad was. Like I said, I, I, when I came to this country, I came to find out what all that was about. And yes, I, you know, then I found out that this squad was just a group of people, <laughs> uh, you know, um, going out there and just just killing people, <laughs> killing people, you know. And uh, of course, um, I was already here, and I heard about it when I was in El Salvador, but I didn't pay too much attention to it at them because I, I was under the impression they were not going to do nothing to us because we were just kids. Until of course. They scared me when they told me that I was almost ready to go to war because I was going to be 12. I was like, 12? I'm supposed to be still be playing with other, you know, my friends. I'm not thinking about grabbing a rifle and, and go to war. Right, and the, the, the war in El Salvador during that time, if you didn't know who to trust. You didn't know if you, you know, trust the soldiers that fought the guerrillas who were trying to take the power away from from the government or to, you know, trust the guerrillas who fought to liberate you from the corrupt government. And here you are in a small rural town with no television. You don't know 
which way it should go. But one thing that you knew that there was danger, it was th um, danger was coming from both sides. Yes, that's the scary part. And I realized uh, after all, um, a few years after I came here that, yes. And that when, but when I was over there, that was kind of kind of weird because uh, we <laughs> they will, they will, the people will tell us, you know, don't trust these guys and don't trust the other guys. So that was scary because one day, you know, as me and my friend were fishing and we saw uh, a whole bunch of soldiers, you know, on the river. Uh, they, I guess they were fishing too, but we started running when we saw them. But before that, when they were on the bridge, we were cool. But at that moment, we just started running. So me and my friend Miguel, you know, we ran for about half hour. <clears throat> I think we, we, we talked to each other while we went back home, like why we were running from them. You know, and, and then, um, so that was kind of scary running from the ones that you think they're going to protect you. And at the same time, you know, we, a couple of times we saw some, you know, guerrillas also, and we were afraid of them. So that's kind of scary. You have, you're afraid on both sides, so you don't know what to do. And, 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 and it was scary because it, it, it really was, it really was, you know, a couple of times we have to go to the mountains and hide in the mountains. I think we did only a couple of times. I remember. So it wasn't that bad though, compared to other people that had it worse. But just a couple of times we went to see my aunt and then uh, we heard we heard some fire. They were firing not too far away from there. And we went to the mountains because she lived close to the road. So. So your mother is here in, in the United States. Now it's time for you to come to the United States. How many attempts did it take for you to get here? It twice i know the first time um these guys uh that was helping us abandon us in in a in a border between mexico and uh in guatemala and then uh we went back to el salvador and right after that uh i know we tried again and uh we finally got here i finally got here it was, it was just how beautiful. old were you it was just everything happened right there when i was like around 12. everything happened right there when i was around 12 12 to 13. everything happened right right there it was just it was just really quick, you know. I know the only thing that's in my memory from those days is that something happened not too far away from our house, from our little town. And my mom, my grandma was really scared. My cousin, my, my, my mom found out about people from here, found out about, about what happened there. And me being one of those of that age, you know, so my grandma didn't want to take no chances. And she just uh, sent us right away. Sent me, of course, right away. And my sister stayed over there because she was she's still a kid. So you're here in the United States. Um, housing, school, uh, culture shock, I guess. Yes. When I first came, of course, you know, uh, everything was different from my country. And uh, I didn't go to school right away. Um, uh, my mom didn't know what to do uh, because she had to work. And so I didn't go to school right away. I started going to school when I finally moved uh, to a building where my uh, aunt leaves and then that's when I started going to school so I didn't go to school right away it's funny but um, I didn't do that good at school over here you know I have been told maybe from all the stuff that I that I saw over there and I witnessed over there probably kind of traumatized me because when I came to school because we here that was my first intention but I didn't do that good and so it's probably that play a part was it easy to make friends I, the friends that I made is funny. Most of the friends that I made have also kids around my age that have come through from El Salvador and and from Guatemala because Guatemala is going was going through the same thing. It was funny, you know. They all have stories. I didn't like to talk about my stories to be honest. I don't know why. 
I didn't see that much of a stuff, but I was still traumatized by the fact that why we were running, why we so many changes so quick, you know. And like I said, I was still proud and naive at that age. It took me a while. I think it took me about four years after I was here to realize, hey, wait a minute. So now I know what really happened over there, what really is happening over there. And that was another part because at that moment, you know, uh, I realized if I didn't know if I was going to see my father again because uh, I only saw my father like twice when I was a kid, but I didn't have that much memory of him. And I knew he was still in El Salvador. But coming over here, making friends, yes, it was easy. It was easy. They were the same friends. You know, they were the same people that had gone through something similar. They, they had the same stories, just amazing, but they had the same stories. Nobody said, oh, I left El Salvador, I left Guatemala because uh, I just want to come here to school. No, everybody was had the same story. We left because it was just crazy over there in those days. I don't think there were not many of people that, that said they were leaving because uh, they hated the country. No, they just left because uh, something was happening over there and they were scared. And we were looking for a better life. And the United States was that country that was providing, you know, without opportunity. And, 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 uh, and that's why we are here. Poverty and threat of war and actual war are the reasons why you and your young friends, your, your families, find your, found yourself here in Los Angeles, leaving El Salvador and Guatemala by the way of Mexico. Exactly. That's what it was. War and poverty. War and poverty. That's it. I, don't, I can't find anything else. You know, of course, now in age it's a little bit different, you know, but in those days that's what it was. I mean, because uh, like I said, I don't remember what economy was, but then I found out what economy was. But what I'm saying is like, we used to have food on the table all the time. We used to eat breakfast. Hey, we used to eat lunch. We used to have dinner. We used to eat. We, my, my grandpa, when he was alive, he, he had everything. Then my uncles, you know, but in like two years after my uncle, my father, my, my grandpa died. It's like two years after that, everything changed. So it's like, he didn't give us even the time to think what are we going to do next thing we know is like they're leaving us you know our uncles my mom and all the grown-ups in that in that little town they're leaving us i wasn't the, the only kid you know I, I said on my book i don't want nobody to think i'm the only one who went through that you know it was just a whole bunch of kids like their parents are gone they left them with the grandparents it's like a whole bunch of grandparents taking care of their grandkids you know and then i think uh, one by one they're starting to bring the kids over here i was just one of the lucky ones you know, I lost one of my best friends. As a matter of fact, I lost my best friend. When I went back to El Salvador, oh, I knew he had passed away because we heard of it here. But I lost my best friend. I lost my partner, one of the guys that used to be a fisherman. He was a hunter. He was one of the best. He was uh, the, f the brother of one of my best friends, too. There was like three of us, like four of us. He wasn't winning. He, he went to war and he, he died during the war. And then all the others made it except for like a, a couple of two others that I wasn't too familiar with them, but they were from the little town. So, yes, all the other kids made it over here. When we come back from a break, Douglas, we'll talk about you being an adult in the United States and how you um, became a truck driver. I'm your host, Angela Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Peace with who you were soon to known to be a walking miracle and who is the author of Comeback, One Man's Triumph Over a Near-Death Experience, Douglas Sandoval. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
Against All Odds, Surviving and Discovering the Importance of True Life, the Power of Family, Faith, and the Belief in Himself. Welcome back to Conversation Peace with Douglas Sandoval. I am your host, Angela Birdsong. Before we went to break, you and your mother have made it safely here to the United States. She tried twice, made it the second time. You also made it here on the second attempt. Correct. Now, let's get into the reason why you wrote this book about your near-death experience. So, so now you're an adult and in Los Angeles. And of course, we're, we're leaving a lot of stuff out of the book because you need to get the book. <laughs> you need it, right? So let me just let you know, um, go to comebackdouglas.com. That's his website. And his book is available where all books can be bought, um, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. So there's some things that we're intentionally leaving out because we want you to buy the book. You're not going to get the the cheat notes <laughs> here on the show with us today. But I do want to get into the meat and potatoes of, of the book. The other part where you decided that you wanted to be a truck driver. We already know you were in war-torn um, El Salvador during the break. You talk about seeing dead bodies and what have you um, in your book some rough obstacles that you needed to um, overcome as you matriculated into mainstream, so-called mainstream um, society here in Los Angeles. It's a little bouts with, with the law and what have you, just being a kid hanging out with the wrong crowd. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, being a man of color, um, then the police are harassing you and some things that you just couldn't prove that you were not guilty of. We know all that's in there, but I want to get to where you decided you wanted to become a truck driver. Yeah, I decided, I decided to become a truck driver um, for a couple of reasons. One is because I always wanted to get to know the rest of this country. And, and then the other reason is because I was going through the depression because I had just separated from my first wife and my kids were not with me. And becoming a truck driver was going to make it easy for me to go and see them because they live in another state. But the main reason was because I love this country and I wanted to go get to know the rest of it. So the first thing I did was uh, go to another state, you know, and become a truck driver and drive uh 48 states across country. But that was the main reason because I wanted to get to know the rest of this country. And at the same time, of course, I was going to be making money. And now truck, truck driving, you're going across country, you're meeting a lot of different people. They're giving you tips on, on how to operate the truck, how to navigate across the country for the different routes that, that you were on. And then you became an expert and it and everybody loves Douglas. <laughs> when you're on the CV radio, you're getting loads of friends. You're a prankster. You're you're loving. And then of course you had a few people who didn't like you because you know some of your jokes were were I don't know off color <laughs> when you were um, carpercita. Caperucita Roja, Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and, and Super Pollo, though those those were your truck driver names. Yes. Uh, 
Well, every truck driver out there knows that you gotta have a nickname in order for you to communicate with the others. So they give me, they gave me those two nicknames, Super Poi, which means Super Chicken, and the other one means a little red riding hood, uh, Caperucita Roja, and that's how everybody knew me. Most of the most of the truck driver knew me just over the radio. Nobody really uh, uh, knew me, you know, in person until after the accident. They wanted to get to know who this guy was that had made them laugh and. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, I want to say nine out of ten uh, love me. It's just a couple of guys out there that you know they they was just no fun. They was always having probably I don't know some personal issue, but most of everybody there loved me and they wanted to know who I was, you know. So who who this person was that made him laugh? So uh, I think I said in my book that I met about two hundred and something truck driver at one point after the accident. And yes, of course, you know it was fun. It was fun, you know. Uh, 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 for a while, I think people thought they were talking to a woman because I made this voice and they thought it was a woman. But uh, it, like I said, it was fun. Being a truck driver to me was the most beautiful experience ever. Not just the part where, you know, I was being a prankster or having fun, but the part where, like, meeting other people and going to other states. So I just love it. I love it. I, I don't think I I don't think I ever uh, wake up in the morning and said, oh, I got to go to work. No, I was just fun. I was just waiting for the next day to come and start driving because I love, I love driving. And I love, I just love the roads out there. What do you remember from the truck accident? From the truck accident, I don't have too much recollection except for the ones that I, I was told. But I know for sure uh, that I hit another truck. Uh, they said I was doing about 60, 65. And then uh, waking up, I just remember waking up inside the truck from, uh, and then uh, I keep passing out. I keep passing out. And uh, so it's funny because uh, uh, a few months, a, a few weeks after the accident, my boss told me that the truck was completely destroyed from inside. And when I told him that uh, I heard a voice inside my truck, and that the radio was on, he said that's impossible because the radio it couldn't be the radio because the battery was destroyed, and there was no uh, 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 there was no electrical, so and, and the radio was destroyed. I told him that I had a boy inside the truck while I was passing out that that only Jesus Christ was the answer for all my troubles, because I was in a big trouble at the moment. But I remember by the accident. No, I don't have too much except for like I said, the one that I picked up from the from the report from the CHP. And from my former boss, uh, who, well, still my boss, I call him my boss, Wilson, and he was tall, and he basically is the one who fits me up and my sister, you know, and what happened. But the only thing I remember is just that I'm waking up inside the truck and being taken a helicopter, and, and that's the scary part, because in the helicopter, I knew that I, that I, was, that I was dying. That's when I, it hit me. It hit me. It hit me for the first time that, that I was about to uh, face death. Because uh, I just couldn't breathe, I just I just couldn't breathe, and there was blood coming out a lot of my. I just heard this nurse. I, well, I'm saying she was a nurse. This lady in the helicopter kept calling my name. I think she knew my name by then. She kept saying that, "Hey, Douglas, stay awake, stay awake. We're going to the best hospital in the West Coast. We have the best doctors." That's all. That's all I remember from that moment. And then I know I woke up. I'm keep saying I woke up, but I I came I came to it. I, I think about seven to eight days later. And that's when they told me that I had been uh, out of it for almost six, to s for almost seven to eight days. I know it was in those coma, they call it. But uh, yes, uh, it was scary for my family because they thought I wasn't going to make it. And this accident, um, you know, and th let me ask you this. 
What about the other truck driver? Uh, well, uh, because you hit him in the back. Yeah, I hit him in the back, but he was he, he had a, a set of doubles. We call it a set of doubles. So he had two trailers. Uh, for understanding, yeah, I probably hurt him because I hit him pretty good. But I don't think he was that serious because I was told that that, that he was okay. But he, of course, he probably has some. I probably he probably got hurt. That's for sure because uh, I think I. Uh, both of his trailers were joint and then uh, of course the back of the back of the real tr of his trailers went inside my cab which is if it has a form of a form of a b they carry um they say he was carrying uh uh apple apple concentrate apple over there and then here they mostly hold dirt but uh i hit him pretty good and i know he probably got hurt but uh i didn't hear that much about him but i know i probably hurt him how long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital for about, that's, a, that's, that's another beautiful thing uh, because um, I was told that I was going to be there for a while and I ended up only staying three weeks, about three three weeks and a half. And even the doctors were amazed that I, that I was able to uh, bang my knee really quick. Uh, I was able to get out of bed on my own with the crutches. I was able to do that in order for me to get an airplane. So. Uh, I got out of the hospital uh, uh, compared with the time that they told me I was going to be in Washington. I think I was only there for three for three weeks. For three weeks. I, w uh, I know I went there on the 23rd and came out on the June, June the 10th. So, so it, it, was, uh, uh, it, it was quick. I mean, compared to what the doctor had told me when I, came, when I, when I finally was able to talk. And after the hospital, you went into rehabilitation? After hospital, yeah, uh, well, for th three months, mm, there was no rehab. It was just uh, stay at home uh, because they need at least three to four months for me to uh, heal a little bit, for me to start to rehab. I was in a wheelchair for about five months, I think, all together. But uh, after I came out of the hospital, I would just stay home. I stayed home for a while, so I think it was until like September or something. But uh, four, four months later, I think I start, finally started rehab. Are trucking accidents normal? That's, that's the scary part. It is. It is because uh, three of my friends that I knew over the radio, and that's another thing, I only knew them over the radio. We call them friends because we knew each other over the radio. They have died before me. As a matter of fact, one of them died uh, uh, not too far away from here. So he was from El Salvador too, young men uh, who have not been here for such a long time. And yes, uh, are very common up there, truck, uh, truck accidents. That's just something that happens all the time. And so so I just didn't know it was going to happen to me. It was going to be that severe because I already had a couple of three accidents before. They were just minor. Nothing happened to me. I just didn't know this was going to be that big. It was really big because they, they were not giving a chance of me coming out of it. And here you are against all odds. I know we didn't go into the fine details of what your injuries were, but how many broken bones did you have in your body? Wow, broken bones, uh, six or nine fraction ribs. I broke my leg in five different parts, including part of the hip. And, but I think uh, the major ones is, is my, my heart. I And my heart and my left lung. And the doctor said those... Just one of those was enough to kill me from the impact. Well, one doctor put it this way, or oh, you were not supposed to survive the impact. As a matter of fact, you were not even supposed to survive five to 10 minutes after the accident because uh, you rapture or deception your yoda. So, and that's detailed in the book too. And also on my website, I have the medical paperwork on the website. So in case people wanna see, it's right there on my website. Well, we're gonna have to go to, to a break. Um, soon, but 
but before before we do, where was your mother? Wow, that's when, when this accident happened. My mom was here in Los Angeles, and she got a phone call. She got a she got a phone call from uh, a friend of mine. Got a phone call. They got a hold of the number of my phone. A friend and got a phone call from a state trooper. And he went to my mom. At first, my mom thought he was joking, you know. And then he finally said, "No, Sophia, it's not a joke. Your son is possible death, or he's dying in a hospital." And of course, he said it like that. That's the that's the, that's the part that my mom was like. That's what she thought it was a joke, but. Knowing my friend Tomas, and he he wasn't joking. He told it straight out. You need to get over there. So my mom got a hold of my aunts and my cousin to help it out, and they put him on the plane. The sad part is that my mom, you know, having issue with reading and writing and all the stuff, and she was so nervous, she was still crying. She got on the wrong plane. So we don't even know how these people got let her get on the wrong plane and end up in Patton, Canada. So it was about eight hours later when my mom finally left. They let her go from Canada to 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 Seattle, uh, Washington, in a small plane, in a small private plane. She said she was a little tiny plane, and they drove her back uh, the next day. The next day, around 8 a.m. So basically, my mom was. She said she cried and she was yelling, screaming, and, and they didn't believe it until they finally got a hold of the hospital. And they f so my mom went through a lot from the beginning, and um, it, it, it wasn't that easy for her. But when she got to the hospital. She thought she was just gonna see me sitting on the bed, and I'm gonna be like, "Hey, mom, what are you doing here?" But when she got there, it hit her that uh, that was not it. And then uh, right after she got there, she said the doctors took him inside this room, and she started signing off papers. And those papers were not good papers that she was signing. They were not papers that your son is going back into Los Angeles pretty soon. They were papers that little were telling her that they had done their best, and uh, the next surgery could be the last one. Would you please read this passage in your book on page 124 for me? 124? 124. You know what? Let's read it when we come back from the break. Okay. Yes. Let's do it. Yes, let's do that then. All right. I'm Angela Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Piece on RadioJustice.org. We'll be back with more from author Douglas Sandoval's story of mercy, courage, and faith. Tell your heart to beat again Close your eyes and breathe it in Let the shadows fall away Step into the light of grace Yesterday's a closing door You don't live there anymore Say goodbye to where you've been And tell your heart to beat Welcome back to Conversation Piece on RJLA. I am your host, Angela Birdsong, with my guest, Keep On Keeping On Trucking, Douglas Sandoval, who said God gave him the strength, but he knew he had to do his part. Douglas, please read that passage in your book on page 124. I once met a cardiologist for an evaluation. I will never forget that day. Even though he had my files in his hand, he asked me who I was. I told him my name, and he asked, are you the guy from these files? Yes, 
He says, Douglas Sandoval, right? He looked at me and asked for my birthday where the accident had happened and a whole bunch of other questions. Then he said, this is impossible. There is no way someone could have survived with a rupture yoda for a long time. And if I'm not mistaken, you had the first surgery to repair your aura almost an hour after the accident, but you also had other problems when you arrived at the hospital. You are a miracle. You were supposed to die just minutes after the accident or immediately from the impact. Truly, you're, you're a miracle. According to medical statistics, medical experts, you are not supposed to be here. <laughs> Correct. Uh, I think I have met close to 10 to, besides the doctors in, in Seattle, the ones that I met here, I want to say about more than 10 doctors. And everyone, except for a couple of them, but almost everyone, as soon as I read my file, they told me right away if I believe in God. And I told everyone yes. And he said, because you are a miracle. You do not write. I said, By that time, of course, I knew. I already read my files. I read uh, all the people. And I had a cousin who's a, who was a medic, who was a, doc a doctor. And, um, and other people have told me that, that was impossible. As a matter of fact, one doctor put it this way. And he said uh, he couldn't figure out why when I arrived to the hospital, they only found like a 1.5 liter of blood in my abdomen. According to him, he said they were supposed to find a lot more. As a matter of fact, he said I was supposed to like literally bled to death. He said, because if you read really carefully, say, it says you're a rapture. You, you're a rapture and you're a dissension. That means it came off. And he started pointing at, at, a, in, at, a, at a something that he had right there on his wall. He said, See, this is the Yora. He was the cardiologist. This is the guy, this is the guy that I just spoke about, I read, just read right now. And he had a uh, thing that he said, look, this is the Yora, Douglas. People could get shot with a bullet. They could get a punch with a knife. See, but once the Yoda doesn't rapture, it's okay. You can still can make it to the hospital to fix it. But according to this, it says it ruptured. You know, that means it's disconnected. And it says dissension. That means it came off. He said that, so you were supposed to bleed today. But he said, but never mind that part. He said, you know why the reason why I think you're a miracle? Because your left lung, your left lung was punched. So that means, how were you breathing, my friend? And then he started putting other ways. He said, look, this, this is the thing, things you've, they found to you when you arrived to the hospital. And then your, your blood was already coagulant. So he said, so to me, that he said, I, I'm just going to do an evaluation on you, but I, I wish I could have been your doctor <laughs> because I would, it was truly amazing to see somebody. And he told me, he said, Douglas, I've been, doing, I've been doing this for almost 50 years, and I'm about to retire. And it was an honor to meeting you. And I think he was the one who told me, one day you should write a book about your story because you have an amazing story. And then he asked me, okay, you believe in God? I said, yes. You go to church? I said, yeah, I go to church. So find a church that is opening every day or go to different church that are opening every day because you should be in church every day because you're not supposed to be here with us. And that's why I'm a truly a miracle. You truly are a miracle. Does he know that you wrote the book? You know, I, uh, uh, Mr. Earl, I told me once that I should start looking for all these people and tell them that I did write a book. I think he retired because he told me he was about to retire, but I do still have his name. I could probably go, you know, everybody's in Google these days. Maybe <laughs> I can find him. But I have my other primary doctor who I, I will, uh, him, I am, when I'm on the same book. He's the one who treated me 
uh, uh, for uh, for my therapy, but he was my primary, but he was an orthopedic, but he was my primary. He took really good care of me. He also said something that got me at my attention, you know, but it's on the book, like you said, we're gonna leave for them to read, but he said something that got my attention when I think uh, you and I, we spoke about that, is uh, about my therapy. Cause he said he, he was amazed that I, I have not just sat on the couch and just wait for people to do something for me that I have was doing through my own. At one point he said he didn't uh, approve that, but when he saw what I was doing, he was excited to know that I was doing things on my own and not just waiting for other people to do it for me. And I told him that I, that strength was coming from God. Physical therapy. <laughs> you did it. You hated it. You took it upon yourself to do physical therapy on your own at home also. And, and for the, the conversation piece, um, listeners, Douglas does not look like his medical report at all. He does not look like the, the, the medical findings after the mo motor vehicle collision. He does not look like uh, what the cardiologist was expecting to see um, in the waiting room coming into the examination room based on the files that he had in his hand. Exactly. Douglas has, is, is so inspiring because when people go through physical therapy, for whatever their ailments are from accidents, strokes, health reasons, people don't seem to just have the mental preparedness, the, the, the mental toughness to, to do the physical therapy because it's painful. It is. And to continue to with the physical therapy at home. Tell me about physical therapy. Physical therapy, yes. Yeah. Well, it was about five years and a half. It wasn't just like a few months because I had to put surgery to remove metals. They had to remove the metals from, from my right leg and all the screws because one of the screws was getting close to another bone that I was not damaged. But that, that because what they did to me in, in, in Seattle, they just put me back together right away. They did an amazing job. I mean, I'm not saying that they left one thing wrong. No, but... I, my primary doctor here told me that it was very important to remove those metals since I was still young and I could still couldn't handle it. So he did it in two years apart. But uh, my rehab, it was five years. It was painful because, I mean, here's a 35-year-old man that had just left his house a month before walking, jumping with 180 something 180 pounds and then uh, a month later is coming back to the house weighing 116 pounds so where's the rest of the body and now i have to do therapy i have to learn how to walk literally i have to know how to walk yeah, of course i cry I, I i mean um i cry my mom went through all of that with me see me crying at night for no reason and but uh yes at one point i also said I, it, it would have been better if i would have just died at the hospital because the pain was just so amazing and I, no matter how much medication I took, it was just horrible. And my body, I, I mean, I, 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 my mom had to literally help me get into the bathroom, come out. It was just horrible, you know, so, so, so it wasn't easy. And when I started doing my own therapy, when I, and I felt that I could do it, and I started doing my own therapy, but that's because before the accident, I used to do, uh, I used to work out. So I kind of knew a few tricks. So that, that, thank God, that helped a lot. That helped a lot. You know, when I was told, hey, uh, unless you want another surgery, you're going to have to do something on your own. Otherwise, they're going to cut you back. And I think that was the only part of my body. Well, I do have a big surgery on my back, but there was nothing on my lower back, thank God. And this uh, Asian lady told me, if you don't want a surgery on your lower back, 
because you're already cut off from all over the place. You're going to have to do what I said. And I did it. Thank God, that with, a, with, a, with, a, you know, with a strength from my Lord God, I did it in a year. And that's when the doctor was told me that he was amazed. As a matter of fact, I do say the part in the book, he said that I was not good for, I told him that I was not good for business because I was the kind of person that, 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 that I was not good for business. And he said, yes, Douglas, it is true. But he did tell me something that got my attention. He said, but I, I'd rather have people like you than people that just want to go into surgery right away. And, you know, even though it took a little bit longer, but, hey, you did it. That's all it matters that you did it. So I was able to fix the low back within seven to ten months without surgery. Without surgery. Without surgery. <laughs> and five, five and a half years, you said, of yeah. physical therapy. Yes. It, it was always in between because uh, they have to post, they have to post surgery and, and, and they also did something on my low back and that put me out. And then, of course, you know, uh, that's also in the book, and, and I had another major accident. Oh, after right, that. the second, the second accident. I had right. another, another second accident in, 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 a, in a car. Not, not, a, not yeah. You didn't, you weren't trucking again. No, right. It was in the car, and that also kind of like put me back a few months of therapy, you know. So yeah, that that played a big part. But it was all together. It was five years and a half, literally five years and a half, and I have to be back to when I say normal. And then after that, I have done things on my own, of course. Where did you go for physical therapy? Was everything done in the same place? And how, how many of those five and a half years did you do things on your own without going back to the physical therapist? Oh, I, 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 I think I did physical therapy for, for the first six months when I came out of the hospital. And then, of course, right after that, that's, I was, as I was doing on January of 2004, I was doing physical therapy when I had the accident. So that put me again on almost another five months waiting and then went back to physical therapy for another like six months. So I want to say I did probably, I want to say I did a whole bunch of months of physical therapy in different places. But then yet, I think the biggest one, it was the one where I was talking about the low back. Because, but that one I think I went for just a few months and then the rest of it I did it at home. The doctor did some some tests while that was happening, and he liked the outcome that uh, that, that 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 he shows. But uh, like I said, I did it on my own. This is just a joke. about someone told me, Douglas, you, you shouldn't do that because uh, the the insurance must be happy with you because uh, when he gets the doctor's note, they'll be like, well, we're well, we're not paying for this guy therapist who's doing this for him. And I told him that I didn't care about that. <laughs> I was just worried about my body. I, I I was just worried about my body, and I needed to take care of my body. So so. Because I, I was told by a lot of people, you just go ahead and you let you cut your back. It's just normal. Yeah, no, 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 it's not normal. <laughs> I already had too many surgeries. But, you know, God, it's amazing. And the people that were surrounding was amazing, you know, the people that were surrounding and some wonderful people that helped me out and, you know, and, and always told me not to give up. And that's one of the things that I am, uh, focus on the last book is just never give up until the last breath. Right. And in, in, in your, your book, you have so many uh, motivational um tidbits that that you you give us you know like the keep on keeping on and keep on trucking and i think you said don't give up on on your dreams those are sprinkled through throughout your your book where can we find your book we said amazon and barnes and noble and at your your website comebackdouglas.com but how can we find you and the book? Well, <laughs> for a speaking engagement, you do speaking engagements. Yeah, I go to I go to uh, right now go to churches, churches most of all, and yes, uh, uh, they can go to my website. And most of the information is on my website. Come back, Douglas. 
Douglas.com. It's very easy. ComebackDouglas.com. And then for the book, they can just uh, uh, Google it. You know, uh, Douglas Sandoval, come back in, in, in the company that I distributed the book. They are created like a little profile. So uh, all the information is there or any any uh, website, you know, where they sell books. Amazon. Or oh, well, they can go through Amazon, eBay, and Barnes & Noble, and all the, and all the websites. And uh, it's funny because a few days uh, I was reading that I think it being translated in another language. So that's very interesting. And so, and my information is on my website. And it's on my website, Comeback Douglas. Most of the information that is needed is there, you know. And then, uh, or they can go to my Facebook page and just, uh, you know, friend me. And I'm there too. And Douglas Sandoval. And he has uh, my, I'm there in a picture with my book. Last question, very brief answer. When did you become a U.S. citizen? Uh, sure, that was around 2000, I want to say, because I just renewed that. So it was around 2018, around that, around that, around that time. I decided to become a U.S. citizen and uh, be residents way long before. And uh, it's a, it's, it, it was something that I was in my dream. You know, I love this country. And then uh, and we finally we finally became a U.S. citizen. And, 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 uh, and one thing that I, I know we don't have too much time, but I think I'm still going to go back one day and drive just across country just for the fun of it. That's how much I love this country. Not as a truck driver, so I can't do that no more. But I'll be back one day just to drive around. You'll be back one day. And you guys most definitely have to pick up his book. We left out a lot from his book because we cannot cover it in, in, in 50 minutes for an hour show of conversation piece. So make sure that you pick up Douglas's book, Come Back, One Man's Triumph Over a Near-Death Experience. Truly, truly a walking miracle. And find out about his journey of faith with God, the ebb and flow that he had with, with God, turning his back on God for a minute, thinking that he can do everything on his own and God clearly getting his attention, um, not just once, but a few times, remarkable story. So thank you. Thank you, Douglas, um, for, for being on, on my show with me today. And I do know Douglas. I've known Douglas for 10 years. Yes. And so basically I, I work for you. <laughs> oh no, not really. <laughs> not really, but but I, I, I appreciate you um coming here. So And thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking your time you having me here. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, Douglas Sandoval, author of Comeback, One Man's Triumph Over a Near-Death Experience. Go to ComebackDouglas.com to find his book. And, of course, he's Googleable, so just put in um, Comeback Douglas and you will find him or the title of, of his book. So thank you. Thank you, my, my conversation piece guest, who is a walking and living miracle, Douglas Sandoval.
And thank you to Leslie Radford, the visionary behind RGLA, Adam Rice, program director, Joseph Tucker, my engineer and producer who keeps me on time, Michael Washington of MWatch So for the opening and closing theme song, and always you, our RGLA family. Reach us on Radio Justice Facebook. Give us some love. Give us some likes as you listen to us worldwide anytime on radiojustice.org. Once again, thank you for allowing me to share this special experience of Conversations Peace on Radio Justice LA Morning Wake Up Call with you. Remember to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be courageous, and let all that you do be done with love. <laughs>